Being the storyteller you are, you have a way of just bringing people in and you you share your personal history um, coupled with, you know, American Black history. Um, mm -hmm. So you do a, I believe you do a very good job at, you know, bringing us into your world um, and sharing those stories. When did mm -hmm. you discover that storyteller in you? I think, you know, it starts with who you are as a child. You know, I had a, I had a vivid imagination. Um, I think I started really writing when I became, like when I was coming of age, like 18, I started writing poetry and, you know, love performance. And I actually moved from Southern California to Northern California because I was kind of following that drive to be a poet. And I had, you know, learned of other poets and kind of a, a community of creatives in the Bay Area. And I wanted to be there, you know, so. You wanted to be um, where it's happening. Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to be a poet. And so I, that's how I thought of myself. And I took, um, I just wrote, you know, sort of like if you're learning music and you're self-taught, I felt like I was a self-taught poet just following examples like, you know, the, the poets at that time, like Nikki Giovanni and, you know, looking at those writers and, and kind of, I'd read something and then I would write something in response to it. That's yeah. how I really oh, kind yeah. of, you know, I would get it. Like if you're listening to music and music emotes a certain thing and then right. you write something because you loved what that said or you're responding to it. And so I think that that's, I would buy, books if I saw a, uh, the face of a, a, a brown or black or Asian person on a, a book of an anthology of poems and I didn't know the poets I would buy the book and read all the poems and you know I had when I open those books now I see my notations I see where I started a dialogue by writing my own poem in response to it mm -hmm. you know so I think that that's where it really started just um Loving when I was a child, I loved to read. I always loved movies, um, and I always I I when I was a child, I loved musicals. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm I'm of the age where musicals were, you know, like oh my god, like okay, let me think. Mary Poppins, I want yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what was available, and and then those older ones, you know, like um, from my mother's generation, like. Um, uh, what Carmen, Porgy and Bess, mm -hmm. you know, all of those kind of musicals always intrigued me, you know. So I've always been a child of the arts, and that's probably where that comes from. <laughs> yeah, so you, you didn't just listen or you didn't just, you know, you took it in, but you actually, it prompts you to respond. Mm hmm. Yeah. 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 You have roots in South Carolina. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my it's mother was born, born there. Mom's mm -hmm. from South Carolina. And what right. part of South Carolina? Charleston. Okay. Yeah. So she's from a, a, an island that is also part of Charleston. Um, that's called Young's Island. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's one of the barrier islands. Okay. So what mm -hmm. was it like? Do you know what was it like for her? Um, I, I know a lot about what it was like for her because I'm always recording her stories and I'm always tapping into those stories, you know. So, you know, I spent time um, 
there when I was a, a small child. I, you know, spent time away from, I was born in New York. So she would send my brother and I to um, down south to be with our cousins for a whole summer. And sometimes it was over, like, um, it could be over Christmas. You know, there might we might be there longer than that. So, um, it you know, it was for me, I mean, when my mother tells me what it was like, it, it definitely was a different way of life. But there is some... Um, uh, romanticism about, you know, how they subsisted, you know, all of their food came from the, the water, you know, cause they eat seafood, a lot of seafood, fish, um, or they, we say fush, flush, and, um, and also, you know, they, they grew their own food. She told me about at a certain age, um, to be, so when you were growing up at that time, and maybe even a while after that, when black children in on in those rural areas were going to schools, there were only like a couple schools. So there were like um, schools that were taught by teachers in like their homes, mm-hmm. you know, um, where they would be all grades taught together. Taught together. And, mm-hmm. and then at a certain age, um, if when you reach the age of high school, there wouldn't be a school that you could go to there. So you had to, their parents had to bargain with relatives or um, people that they trusted in town, which would be downtown Charleston area, to attend a school downtown Charleston. Oh. So that meant it was like going, it was like being in a boarding school in a way because you would be sent to live with a family. Okay. So you'd live with a family and um, my grandfather um, would pay for her room and board while she attended that school. And my mother was the oldest. So he'd pay for her room and board by bringing, um, um, we call it burlap sacks, we call them croco sacks, full of crab and shrimp and fish to that home Mm. at the end of the week. You know, so there were ways to barter for her to be there. To be there. And so, but was she still able to engage with her family or was it just like she oh, yeah. was off? Okay. Yeah, because I mean, Charleston's not, downtown Charleston is not that far away. It depends on where you live. But um, the fact that, you know, for her to be downtown and to enjoy the privilege of going to a better school, mm-hmm. you know, you. There, and, and she has cousins where certain cousins in the family would be selected, you know, um, like her first cousins might be selected to go live in town with a family because maybe they were seen as the ones who were the most intelligent, intelligent or had the most potential. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of like emotional scarring around that, like um, people who felt like their families were giving them away or didn't want them, even though they're adults and they talk about it. I think it's so interesting that they don't have that. Um, they still feel that way, that they were not valued, that they were sent away, like on her uh, uncle's side of the family, like, you know, her uncle had 12 kids, you know, so to send two of them away, maybe at ease. 12, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, How do you make that decision? 
Yeah, it's hard, you know. So, and, you know, I, I, I guess it's no different than people who decide to send their kids to a good boarding school or something, you know. Mm-hmm. But I remember when I, I thought about doing that with my youngest child, like sending her, I had made um, some good connections in, in Dakar, Senegal, because I was spending time there going and coming. And um, I met other American women who lived there, who started living there because maybe they worked in the Peace Corps mm-hmm. as young adults. They married, they had families, amazing stories. And and a lot of them were from the Eastern seaboard, like Maryland and DC and, you know, Virginia. Um, and they somehow share this history of, you know, study abroad or something that took them um, to West Africa. And um, so when I met them in uh, Senegal, these different women, they were kind of their own kind of uh, core community. Support they had for one like, like tribe-like. Yeah, you know, and their children were the first truest African Americans I ever met. Mm-hmm. Truest. Because they could have a conversation with you and I just like this. Okay. And then they could speak three other languages. Okay. You know? Yeah. And someone I was around, their mother would say, just talk to Portia, just, you know, and I'd be like, I'm talking to my daughters, you know? So, mm-hmm. but I think um, one of these women, she has, she still has like a um, French American school that she started. And there would be children that would be, sent there to study in her school. Um, she had a elementary, she had a middle school, and I think the high, the middle and high school, they, she would sometimes have children who were the children of scholars or something who had been sent there for a semester or a year, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I thought, man, I should, that would be a great opportunity for my youngest child, you mm-hmm. know, and she could learn French, um, and, you know, other languages. And I shared that with my mother and she goes, oh, she was very upset that I would even think about sending my daughter over there and leaving her, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I had to kind of reframe that. And now I understand why, but sometimes I regret that I didn't do it, that I didn't take the chance to expose her to that opportunity in that way, you know? Yeah, you you were like, wanting to for her to have that worldview education mm-hmm. yeah yeah and talking yeah, about a really worldview, really experience it yeah <laughs> talking about a worldview education you definitely have that in your travels like how what led you to Senegal the first time I went to West Africa I was um I was still in grad school and I was getting ready to go to a film festival that um African Africans across the diaspora attend. It's like the con of West Africa or the con of Africa. And um, it's called uh, FESPACO. And so I learned about that opportunity when I became really interested in African cinema when I was studying um, film. And um, I, somebody said, well, you should come. You have an opportunity to go, just apply. So... I did, and I was invited to come, and I had to pay for my own airfare and everything. It was like I went with other people from um, Oakland, like a couple other people traveled with me, 
But when we got to New York, where we were making our, you know, we were meeting our international flight, there were all these filmmakers from all across the United States and other places that were taking those flights to go over there. So we chose an itinerary um, through to go through Senegal. And then on the way back, we would come back through uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast. And um, I didn't know much about Senegal, but one of my friends said, um, who was traveling, he worked for a company called uh, California Newsreel, and they do film distribution. And so he said, um, why don't we go through Dakar and go to Goree Island? And I, he says, do you know anything about that? And I said, no, I don't know anything about Goree Island. I didn't know anything about Senegal. And so he explained to me like that was a point of departure you know, um, a slave castle, just like in Ghana, um, Almina Castle and Cape Coast. So in Senegal, you have Goree. And I said, I would love to, let's do that. So we signed up for that, that itinerary. So there were two. Some people went the other route. They went through Cote d'Ivoire and maybe they came back through Senegal. I don't know. But we all traveled on that one. And we met up with others who had, we were using one, um, travel agent who was out of New York, who was an African guy, and he had set up everything. So he was working with other people out of D.C. who were also in the same itinerary. Okay. Are you glad you chose that itinerary? Oh, yeah. And then the other thing is that I had only been here, no, wait a minute, the first time I went, I wasn't here yet. I was still in grad school. The second time I went, I was here. I was already hired. But one of those trips, it was my, was it the second trip? The first trip that I made there was the reason I ended up in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. you know, um, because I met um, Una and Iverson White. They were on the same trip. And he asked us, you know, he taught at UW-Milwaukee in the film school. And we were meeting other people, like it was a whole community of, us, you know, like from different parts of the U.S. And so mm-hmm. we were showing each other work. We we're at the festival. I didn't have work in the festival, but we were kind of, we had like a, what we called a, a video sidebar where we shared work with each other and talked about our work. And so I told him that my work was experimental. And he said, I don't, I don't think it's experimental at all. He still would say that, but it is experimental. Um, <laughs> but uh, when he, when they told me where they lived and they said, and I didn't even know where Wisconsin was, to tell you the truth. Really? I, didn't think, I really didn't know. And, you know, um, so anyway, he said, uh, they were talking, they said that it, it snowed in May sometimes. They were talking about how cold it was. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like sharing how cold it had gotten that year in California because it was 40 degrees and the puddles froze over and everybody just... Everybody else was from the West Coast, of the, I mean, the East Coast, and they were like, are you kidding me? The puddles froze over. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. But I left there thinking, I don't know how those people could live where they live. Mm. I, I don't know how they could live in a situation where it'd be snow on the ground in May. I just don't know. And little did I know that Iverson would recommend me to his department because they had an opening. I had just finished my um, grad program. I think I was in my last year of my grad program and I was working in a library 
And I got this phone call from UWM and they asked if I would come out and teach a, a summer class. And I came out to teach that class. And um, I had another offer for a job that would have been more like a lecturer or, or adjunct in California mm-hmm. at another school. And that dean, that, that was a Catholic college. I can't remember the name of it now, but um she was in Milwaukee and she wanted to interview me because she was in Milwaukee for a conference at Marquette. So I didn't know they were kind of, I didn't know UWM was interested in hiring me past the summer. Mm -hmm. So when they learned that she was in town, they stepped up their game and they offered me the job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I never really got to meet with her at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then, so that, you know, it's kind of kismet that I came out, I was here for six weeks. I had to go home and I had a month to get ready to come back. Because I think I taught from probably June into, or maybe it was like late June into late July. And then I went to a conference in between and at the conference they were sending, and this is before cell phones and everything, but they were leaving messages at the conference, they said, okay, check on this uh, cork board every day to see if you get any phone calls or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. And people were bringing me messages. This is from UWM. They want to know if you'll accept this, if you, you know, you, whatever, contract. They were faxing stuff. I'm doing business. And then after the conference, I had to go home and pack and pack up everything. I, I remember sitting my children down on our little love seat in the living room. (laughs) The youngest was five, getting ready to enter kindergarten. And the oldest was 12. Mm. And I sat them down and I said, we're moving, you know. And I remember the the little one just looking curious until my oldest one started crying. And they both started crying. (laughs) All at once. (laughs) they both started crying but they had been with me here for the summer and we had I liked it I thought it was clean and I thought you know there were parks and I love that there were parks in every neighborhood and I Mm -hmm. loved I knew I wanted to be someplace near the water you know so it just happened to work out so so how were you documenting your experience in Senegal um, prior to, you know, like what you do now, what was documenting looking like for you? Videotape. <laughs> so um, I was probably working in the first time I went to uh, West Africa for Paco and we're going for the festival, but you're spending time in Senegal. You, you know, you're on a kind of tour circle. They're taking you around and, mm-hmm. um, and so I had my camera. I had a high eight camera that I just purchased, a Sony high eight camera, and that was new technology. Because mm. um, I was in film school, I shot film before that, you know. So video became less expensive, and so I wanted that technology. And so mm-hmm. I I remember purchasing my first used uh, Sony camera, and when I got over there, it was acting up because of the heat, the humidity. And sometimes it would just shut off, you know, and sometimes it would, I'd be like holding it and praying that it would not shut off if I was recording something, you know, I was talking to this 
machine, you know. Um, so the first images that I shot over there were on um, high eight. And then um, as I continued to go, yeah, it was high eight. And the very last time I went, it was mini DV, but that was still tape. It wasn't on uh, yet a memory card. Okay. Um, so the last time I was in, um, not, not, I'm not talking about Sierra Leone, but the last time I was in West Africa before I went to Sierra Leone at the end of uh, 2019, um, I was still using tape, you know, so it was like many, the, t the tape format had changed. So know. for people traveling to Africa, um, because a lot of people are interested to, you know, going over to Africa to, to learn about, you know, who they are and who they're connected to. Um, you often hear that they say that you should start um, in West Africa. What are your thoughts as far as traveling to the continent? Well, I think that um, I know a lot of people feel like Ghana is probably the first place you might go because of language. You know, I didn't know any French, but I went to Senegal and I found that I could be there. You know, I felt like I could live in Senegal and um, there's not just French, there's Wolof, you know, and I think the people are really warm. I felt a connection to Senegal, you know, um, to French Francophone West Africa. And maybe because I was exposed to it through these trips when I went to Burkina Faso, that was also a Francophone com uh, country. You know, um, but and I've been to Ghana, you know, so I think it's more a thing of exposing yourself. Like now, a lot of people go to South Africa, which I haven't been to South Africa. I would love to go, you know, um, and I wanted to go to Sierra Leone. And that's why I kind of jumped on that in 2019 when I heard that there was a group going over from South Carolina. I wanted to go on that tour because it was focused on our Gullah Geechee identity, mm -hmm. you know. So there were 50 people on that tour. I, I don't know how it grew to be so large, but just about everyone who went, I knew, you know, from South Carolina, from um, uh, St. Helena Island, you know, a lot of them were St. Helena Islanders. So the, a little further up from uh, Charleston. Okay. So if, if you were a child and you watched uh, Gullah Gullah Island, did you ever see that program? Yes, I heard of that program. Okay. So that family, they were on the trip. So their children are young adults. So they're like, you know, I think the daughter is probably your peer, you know. Okay. And the son, Simeon, and the father and the mother. And so they were on the trip. And then we had a lot of um, young people who were working as assistants to our chaperones. Mm -hmm. So they were from Sierra Leone and they met us and they kind of accommodated us on the road, you know, where we spent a lot of time on the road. Um, but back to your question, um, I think it's one of discovery. You have to go and you have to experience it because as a African filmmaker said to me, on one of my first, my first trip or my second trip, might've been my first trip to uh, West Africa where I thought I was gonna be met at the airport by this one filmmaker that I um, bonded with and he was very important and I didn't realize how important he was like the minister of culture. And he had, he was the one who really extended the invitation, come to Fespaco, you know, and I could stay at their home, you know, mm -hmm. and all of that. 
And when I got to the airport, there was nobody to meet me. And all these other people who had an itinerary were going to a hotel. Okay. So it's like, oh, my God, I panicked and I'm calling. So in my mind, I'm still using our American system like, well, why aren't they here? Well, maybe I'll just call. And other people are like, well, it doesn't work that way over here. You just got to be patient, you know. Mm-hmm. So I remember going to the hotel, giving up and going to the hotel with a group that had been, was being picked up and taken to their the main hotel at the time, which was um, Hotel Independence. And, um, and there was a lot of traffic, you know, you're seeing filmmakers, you're seeing all the celebrity, African celebrities and the French and, you know, and the Americans and the people like Stan Nelson, who's a big time filmmaker, you know, like he, I have pictures of us all being in these spaces together, you know, and, um, and I'm, I'm there and I'm sitting and I'm waiting and nothing is happening. And, and we had vouchers that were given to us. And so I, it was just like, I could write about that first experience. I wanted to come back home. Just that I was ready to give it up. Like, this, was, this is too stressful. I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. And then I learned something about my, not only about myself, but about us. Like, you know, my American friends who had hotel rooms, they didn't offer me a place. You know what I'm saying? Like, they didn't say, why do you look so sad or why are you crying? You know, yeah. so it was, um, it was the film, one of the filmmakers that I had met in San Francisco who was from Mali. And he had come over for a film festival. When I was a grad student, we did kind of like a, a, um, a, what do you call it? Kind of like another film festival because they were going to be in town. That's how I got to meet them. And we curated a program at our school. And I picked them up from the airport and I did all this stuff. And they were like, have you ever been to Festival? And I was like, no. And there was a language barrier, too, because I didn't speak fluid French and, you know, a couple of them didn't speak uh, fluid English. But the one filmmaker who became like a, a big brother to me, he was from Mali. And he was the one who called me after leaving San Francisco and said, you should really come to Fest Paco because he told me other people I knew were coming. Okay. And so I'm sitting in the lobby. I'm looking all forlorn. And he he saw me and he walked up to me and says, what is wrong? And I and I told him, I said, oh, you know and so he went over and he talked to the people and he said she needs you know a place well we offered her a place they said and the place they offered me um had it was like some little dinky it looked like a motel Uh it looked like a roach motel it was not in the independence it was like this little somewhere else you know, there were several hotels that people could stay at, but, um, so you wasn't going for that. No sheets. I, I got, I said, I told the, the driver, I said, wait for me. Cause I'm going to go see when I was with everybody else when they were being dropped off different places. I said, I'm going to go see. And I went and saw that bed had no, um, sheets on it. No, <laughs> no, I'm not staying there. Yeah. You know, so I think about like our privilege, all the things, you know, the fears. Mm-hmm. And so, he arranged for me to stay at the army base until he could connect. He explained to me that my host was very busy, was the minister of culture. And there are all these things that were being planned for this festival and that he 
probably could not get to me that first day. Mm-hmm. So he arranged for me to stay on an army base. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, when I woke up on the military base, and so that next morning when I woke up, I don't think I slept or not. I was sitting there. Every little sound I heard, I'm thinking, what is that in the air conditioner rattling around? What is, you know, like, I don't think I slept. I sat on the edge of my bed and I told myself in the morning, I'm going to get me a ticket back to New York City and I'll spend time with my cousins. I'm not staying here. Mm -hmm. But everything shifted the next day, you know. So, you know, long story short, I returned to Burkina Faso, you know, a few more times. I I went to the festival um, was happening every other year. And I went um, for a while through probably 1997. I think it was every other year. And um, and I and then I started going to Senegal more. You know, there was a whole summer when I spent there with my I went to Burkina Faso and Senegal. And I was there for the entire summer with my children. And you never thought about settling there. I did. Okay. I did. But again, you know, there's that image of like being too far away from family. Mm -hmm. You know, if my mother was aging, I was like thinking, what if something should happen? On one of my trips, she was um, having surgery for colon cancer. Okay. And I was communicating with her from over there, you know, like, but it was on my mind the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? So I started to think, well, I don't know if I should be, you know, and then oh, another trip, my daughter was in college. <clears throat> and I thought my oldest daughter was in college and I was like, what if something, you know, should happen? So I think that those are the kind of um, obstructions that we meet, mm-hmm. you know, um, but there are people who are definitely, I see that more and more. There's a whole community on Facebook of African-Americans who are exiles, you know, by choice, you know, mm-hmm. so I'm not sure. I think about that. And I also think about the fact that when I was in grad school, getting ready to move here. I remember my mother and I went to a meeting in San Francisco for um, Peace Corps. And at that time in her life, she probably was just about going to become 70. And she was kind of exploring that idea of travel or, you know, exploring this idea of being in the Peace Corps. Hmm. Right. And, um, and now as I'm, you know, mid sixties, I can see, where that was coming from. Like at the time it seemed abstract, but I wanted to support her idea. Mm-hmm. You know, she probably didn't share that with my brother, but you know, she and I went to this meeting and, you know, but it was a desire that she had. Mm-hmm. And so um, when I've spent time in West Africa, I did meet a woman one time, an African-American woman who was in the Peace Corps and she was living on Gore and we became really good friends. And she was at the time, the oldest Peace Corps person, oh. but you know, you got to think about like your health or what you're capable of doing. Um, Because as my friend, as I said, getting back to my friend from Mali, when he helped me get settled, he looked at me and he says, Portia, Africa is hard. (laughs) I'll never forget those words. (laughs) Africa is hard, you know. Yeah, and that's interesting to say that because 
you know, a lot of people are um, considering, you know, moving there or they have already moved there. Um, It's not this. It's it's, it's different. It's not this. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. Uh, What are some of the differences? What are some of the major differences that would cause um, an American to say, Mm, well, the conveniences of plumbing. Yeah. I mean, you can have a fancy home. I know people who have fancy homes over there, mm-hmm. but I guarantee you there's always a plumbing problem mm-hmm. <laughs> in every home. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I, some of the women I met, they lived well. They lived well. They had maids. They had, but there was always a bathroom that didn't work well, or there was, don't use this toilet. You know what I mean? So there's always that. And I think it's just a cultural adjustment. You know, I, I wanted to tell a story of a couple of these women that I met there because they shared stories of being in their 20s and moving there and how they first came over and they would dress in jeans or they, they had to learn to uh, blend in. They had to learn the norms of, you know, the, the ways of women in that environment. Mm-hmm. If you're walking, if if I'm walking through Senegal, people can tell I'm a foreigner by the way I walk. Just that simple. Yeah. You know, the women, they're like very feminine. Like they just kind of, you know, I, it's just a whole different. Mm-hmm. They're always aware of their femininity, you know, like yeah. we're, we're well, like trying to get from place to place. Now, right? <laughs> You've been this <laughs> the times. You should have the walk by now. Oh, no, no. I mean, it's just kind of, you know, it's part of the culture. You learn it. It's just like we learn certain things here. You know, I think that going to Africa really, and not just Africa, because I I spent time in Jamaica in the past as a younger person. Um, It really taught me about, Jamaica really taught me about Africa. Mm. But it also, going to Jamaica also taught me to appreciate my Gullah Geechee roots yeah. more. Like, I I didn't know anything about, like, I didn't even, at that point in time in my young, tw- you know, my early 20s, I didn't think about those connections uh, across the diaspora. I wasn't thinking about it in that way. But I always seemed to find myself in communities of people who were from other places. Other places, yeah. You know. Um, I had two very good friends who were um, from, they, they came to California from France, but one was from, his family was from Cameroon, but lived in Paris. Mm. And his best friend was from Martinique and lived in Paris. So they were like best friends and they came to America, you know, mm-hmm. and through them, I learned about African culture, you know. Yeah. So, um, and then being in the Bay Area, the Bay Area has a large um, a Jamaican, West Indian community. Yeah, the Bay you know. is, is pretty, very diverse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, so that was my environment. And I, you know, I kind of lived in that, that world. Like, I remember when uh, people I knew would come to my house for parties and we'd be playing, we might play R&B or whatever you know, whatever was popular at the time. And then there would be a shift and there would be a DJ there and he'd start playing reggae and dub. And they were like, my American friends would leave. Like, what is that? Like, (laughs) 
You know, like, this right, is, like this is my cue to leave. Yeah, like, we don't get this. We're leaving. <laughs> <laughs> they would feel like fish out of water. But that was, you know, my exposure. I had a, a roommate who was from Jamaica, is from Jamaica. And, um, you know, we just we just had a good time. She taught me a lot about Jamaican culture, um, everything. You know, so I appreciate it. I feel like she's like a sister to me. So learning about that culture, I just felt really connected to it. And then as I've gotten to know and reconnect with my, you know, um, cultural roots in South Carolina, there's not much difference to, you know, we were moved around yeah. <laughs> from through the Middle Passage. Some some um, owners, enslavers had, um, you know, stolen Africans that they took from place to place, you know, so we have a sister connection with uh, Bermuda or Barbados, Barbados. And um, we can see it, you know. So the first time I went to Barbados, I went with a boyfriend and his family or something. And I remember um, we went to connect with a family member they had there, a distant cousin that they had been told about. And so we the person picked us up and took us to his aunt's house and we get to the aunt's house and she lived on a farm and she had this basket full of peas that she was shelling from her the older lady. She was shelling her peas and in the living room, she had this big basket. Okay. And I was just like, this is awesome. And they were like, we're so sorry. We apologize. Oh, like they were embarrassed. Yeah. You know? Just amazed. <laughs> and I was like, that looks like the same kind of peas that we eat in South Carolina. <laughs> Yeah. And it was, <laughs> yeah. you know, so um, to have that connection. And, and you know, I, I think, you know, when we think about history and our black history um, mm -hmm. as a black, uh, you know, person, we're, we're just we're always searching. I think we're just always searching, you know, mm -hmm. for that mm -hmm. connection. And um, once we have that, it it just makes us feel at home. You know, it, it's, yeah. you know, for you to go all the way to Barbados and, hey, that's, those are the same peas I eat. It, you know, mm -hmm. it may, you may make them a different way, but that's right. still the same. Yeah. That's still the same. Yeah. Like J Jamaican yeah. food is basically the same. Like, you know, maybe they call it rice and peas and we call it peas and rice, but it's mm -hmm. similar. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing is that the the idea of finding home. So when I was going to Senegal and I felt comfortable there and people would take us from place to place on it. The first time I went, they take you to Goree Island and you have this emotional register because you're on that island. And they tell you the story of your people being deported. But your people could have been deported from uh Bunce Island in Sierra Leone your people could have been deported from Ghana mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that you're from there but it's like as Americans coming to that place for the first time that's a commodity you know so they all say oh you belong to um you're you're a pular you know like almost like you're it's like saying you're biracial or you belong to not uh, not the the um, majority, but you belong to these marginalized people over here, you know, something like that. And so then that, that seed is planted. And so you start to identify with the Fulani, any place you go in 
um, Africa, West Africa, they'll say, oh, you're Fulani. They'll just kind of tag you with that. And you now we have DNA. So it's, it's different yeah. than just being told you're that. Because then over time, you're like, well, that doesn't mean that I am. Like, you know, when I went to Mali, after spending a lot of time in Senegal, um, in Mali, I felt like I saw people who looked like us. Mm. They were a variety of, you know, they they were your shade, my shade. Like in, in Senegal, people are very, very dark, you know, like blue, black, was blue, black, beautiful. The first image I remember of being in Senegal is seeing people who look blue, black to me, but they'd have on bright colors, like, you know, mm-hmm. the cloth they wore. It yeah. was like they were walking pieces of art. And then the ground would be like this red or ochre color. So that just stood out even more to me. It was like mm-hmm. watching a moving painting, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I went to um, Mali, you see people of every shade, you know. And then you realize that, you know, they are different ethnic groups. People have moved across boundaries. You know, you have the Gambia. You have... Burkina, you're seeing, you know, like a full canvas of everybody. And so for me there, I felt like, wow, I felt a spiritual connection to Mali. You know, when I was there, it was like you'd be walking and you'd hear music that sounded very ancient. And then so I felt like I was moving through the present and the past at the same time. That's what I said. It was kind of a simultaneous thing, like this fluctuation between the ancient world and the present world. Yeah. You know, Wow. and and seeing that, I think you can experience that in any country in Africa. Mm -hmm. The other thing is all the assumptions we make of Africa. So like in Senegal, Senegal was an easier place for me to be as a newbie because it was very cosmopolitan. You could be in a place like Dakar is very, you know, like you feel like you were in New York, <laughs> like, you know, there are moments I felt like, well, this is, I can navigate this because this feels familiar mm-hmm. and go to New York now, go to Harlem and you see Africans everywhere, you know? So I'd walk down the street in Harlem and that's where my family, you know, many of my family members live. When I walk down the street and women pass me and they're dressed in, you know, they're boo-boos and, you know, they have their gay legs on and they walk past me and I smell that scent that smells like incense. Yeah, it just takes you back. snatches you back, like, you know, like, oh. (laughs) I remember that. You know, I have funny stories about, like, I rented a house and there was a maid that came. So when you rent the house for what uh, the amount of time you're going to be there, it comes with a maid. So in this case, um, the maid had retired, but her two daughters were taking her place. I'm renting from, you know, a family that's from Cape Bird, and they had this house. So I rented it, and uh, every day the maids came to me and asking me in French, because they didn't speak any English, mm-hmm. what I wanted to eat. So I would always answer in a simple way, poisson et frites. I want fish and chips. Okay. (laughs) You know, so one day she came and said, don't you want anything else? And she started naming things of foods that I recognize the names of like, um, and I said, 
Sure, I like that. You know, Super Kanya is like in in um, in South Carolina, we would call it okra soup. You know, we make okra soup and we put, or gumbo. So you want Super Kanya? Do you want this? Do you like this? Do you like that? I said, sure, sure, sure. They said, okay, give us. And they said a certain amount of money and we'll go to the market and buy these things. I really didn't need them to make that much food because I was staying by myself. Mm-hmm. And I was eating somewhere else. And I always had leftovers. But I was like, okay, sure. So I give them the money. Then I go meet my American friend, the one who owns the school. Her school is across the street. And I told her that the maids had asked me from uh, they were going to make subakanya. She said, how much for how much money? How much did you give them? And I told them, I think I gave them $40. She said, what? <laughs> she said, my maid can make Supakanya for the whole family. And we're six in our family for, for uh, what did she say? For $10. We're going to go over there. So she sensed that there was some swindling going on. Yeah. Right? So that was another time that she came oh. in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the sisterhood, like, we're going to go over there. And, and then she and her daughter went. And at the time, her daughter was like 18. And they came in like gangbusters, you know, okay. like. Um, and I saw the fingers wagging and I saw the heads. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it was over. like, how dare you take advantage of, you know. Yeah. And then I heard, la police, la. The police are there. <laughs> and all of a sudden I saw nervousness and everything. And so then we went for a couple more runs. And this story got around, not just to my American friends, but to the African family that I normally would stay with. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, no. So they sent like one of their family members over to meet again. We're going to meet with these women, the landlord, and then my two friends. So the meeting comes up. When I get back, they have prepared all this food that I didn't ask for. <laughs> they made a cake. <laughs> <laughs> they just laid it out. <laughs> it's a typical sister story. Like they they went to that store after that and they they didn't bring no change back, mind you. So they made all this stuff. Wow. And Oh, they, they went and got the best crab or the, the freshest fish and they, you know, all of this. And so we're having this discussion. And so it turned out that, you know, it, the, the culminating thing was there was a misunderstanding in language or something, but there really wasn't. We knew that, but they went, um, so the, you know, the people who were there, like it was almost like a kangaroo court. They're like, we want to taste the soup of Kanye because they said, oh, she told us to put this in it and to put that in it and to put the." They said, bring us a bowl of that soup of Kanye and we're going to taste it. So everybody got their little sample. Mm-hmm. This is what I heard after this. Oh, my God. This is the best soup of Kanye I've ever had. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm watching their faces and they're like, Oh yeah, this is good supercanya. Yeah, it was worth it. <laughs> they put their foot in that supercanya. Like they probably would have never made it that good in the past, you know. Wow. But yeah. it was that was a lesson. I was like, that's a short film. Yeah, it it is a short film. And but you know, also too <laughs> though, you know, it says a lot about 
the hospitality. Mm-hmm. It says a lot about that, and um, you know the how the village works and how they serve. Um, very much different from over here in America, but I do think that we try to do the best that we can to try to maintain that village. Mm-hmm. But you know, mm-hmm. it, it has you know over the years gotten away from us. Like, why do you think that has gotten away from us? Um, I don't know. I think it's a different world for us. You know, like I think of my mother's generation and I think also of my mother taking the risks that she took, you know, to because of her generation. Like if I look at the cousins who stayed behind in South Carolina, you know, they're the ones who have land. You know what I mean? They're the ones who inherited certain ways of living that is hard for us to to recapture that. You know, um, when you move that far away and the connections that you, you know, lose, because even when I started going back to South Carolina and I'd say to my mother, you think you think you'd ever live there? She says, I don't know those people. That's how she put it, you know, but after she started kind of revisiting with me and making reconnections, she was really um, I could see that that was really valuable, you Mm -hmm. know. And for her to see me navigating the back roads, yeah, you know, that impressed her. You know, I'd say, mommy, do you remember this or that? She goes, no, everything looks different and it's named differently now. And mm-hmm. I'd say, have you ever been here? She goes, no, we wouldn't have been allowed to be on that side of, you know, a certain boulevard or mm-hmm. on, on the other side of King Street if you didn't have on a uniform. You know, so I started learning. She would say, um, here's an address. If I call her, I'm, I'm downtown Charleston. She said, look up this address. She'd be looking for an address of a, a, a person she might've lived with when she was in school. And that's, that street is named differently now, or I can't find the street. Mm-hmm. And then I would, because I'm in the academic community, I might ask somebody, well, I'm looking for, I said, you know, you can go in the um, archives and you can see how they rename streets and streets are not as they were. So I learned a lot about the history because she was always saying, go here, do this, go look for that. And I say, mommy, there are no houses over here now. That's a parking garage, mm. you know, or that's a part of College of Charleston. But what she was doing was making me aware of what was there before. Yeah. You know, so what I'm seeing, and it seems like that's always been there. Mm-hmm. No, you know, and so she said her one of her uncles owned a cleaning business a cleaners and on that street there was a little cleaners so i wonder like how many different hands that cleaners went through but it was still still existed yeah you know um so just that kind of um you know memory and mapping right and so you like you're going through that and your mom is like you know guiding you and and it's taking you back and it's taking you back in time to, you know, where she was like, mm-hmm. how, how do you think, how important do you think it is for today's generation to look back in time in order to understand today? I think it's very important. I mean, I can ask students now I've been teaching at UWM. This will be my 29th year. So I have students in my class who were not even born when I got here, you know what I'm saying? And um, so in order to tell a story about something or to show where 
why a film was made and how it influenced other stories. You know, like say films that are about Black history that are about the Black Panther Party. To point them and say, okay, this story comes from these real events, you know? So you, it's always important. Sometimes I'll just ask students, no matter, you know, like I have now in my classes more students of color than I've ever had. I mean, when I got, when I first came here, I mean, everybody I had was a white boy and a few white girls, you know, like, and if I had students of color, it was very few, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, baseball caps, and if I showed something they didn't like, they'd put their head down like this. They wouldn't even look at the screen. Mm. If there were black images on the screen, they wouldn't even look at it. They didn't want to dialogue with me. They wouldn't look me in the eye. It was it was really something. It was, you a know? Tough time. it was pioneering, you know. So now they got students who they can have a whole they can go all the way through their college career in film and never have me as a teacher, but be a black student. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's it is important. I ask all of them, regardless of who they are what they know about their family's histories. Like, where do you come from? My mom is from Wisconsin. Where? They they say everybody's from Wisconsin, so, but where was your grandmother from? Where was... Mm-hmm. I have to take them that route to... Well, I think she's from... I said, we'll find out, you know? Yeah. So before we can have conversations sometimes, especially in a class like Multicultural America, mm-hmm. I want them to understand who they are before we start looking at who others are. You know, say that again. I I want them to understand who they are before they start looking at who others are. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, it's it's been an experience. I mean, I didn't think I would end up being a professor teaching film. It was a way to feed my children and to have insurance at the time. You know, who knew? I mean. I, I I was in an arts program. I thought I would just be an artist, mm. you know. So um, even that, like sometimes I look at who is there now, who's coming in, mm-hmm. and I see, I, I because I'm the oldest now, like all of the ones who were my seniors have retired, right? So this is the second year of me being the oldest in the department. And I'm looking and I'm seeing certain things kind of loop back around, you know, the way people are hired, the way they're promoted, mm-hmm. um, um, how they look out for each other, you know, they look out for each other, you know, and I can see there's an agreement. I can see it, but you can't like put your finger on it. Yeah, can't point it. Yeah. Like every time an opportunity comes up, some that same person says that other person's name all the time. Cause I already have a plan. They already have a plan for them. You know, or I'm looking and I'm like, when that person get here? Oh, okay. You know, like I'm an executive committee person, but I never knew about that. You know what I mean? So their rules are different and, and they are privileged to have learned to think differently. Mm-hmm. You know, so they automatically know how to administrate. That's nothing I was ever interested in. Yeah. So they can handle uh, five, you know, administrative situations and teach and make their work, mm-hmm. you know, whereas I'm like, I, I, I can't do that because I, I'm doing, 
I'm doing this over here right now. You don't understand. Yeah, so you <laughs> this takes like, all of they me. Are, they are focused on this right here. And they're like, oh no. And then they're building Excel sheets and charts and stuff. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> right. You know, yeah. It, it's like they think like, it's they it's like a corporate world Mm -hmm. it's a corporate environment and black faculty in any discipline we all kind of we all struggle with the same the same old same old you know like and you can talk to each other about it until you blew in the face and you know, some do better than others, you know, but I look now and I, I see younger people who are entering academia, especially the ones as artists, like if they're good, they learn early. Like now, I think they should learn how to negotiate. Mm-hmm. I was just happy to have a job. Yeah. You yeah. know, and I think about all the money they say probably when they hired me, you know, <laughs> you know right. I see people coming in now and they're like, well, I need this and I need that. And I need, you know, and they get that, yeah. you know, so, and you know, it's, 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 it's a different world to be able to say, Hey, I'm going to negotiate, you know, versus back in your time, you weren't thinking about negotiating anything. You just wanted to secure a job. Mm-hmm. So it was happy that we had dental insurance. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, was, yeah. I was like thinking before this, I was working a part-time job and like three libraries or something. Um, you know, I do feel like I feel fortunate that the kinds of jobs I've had were creative jobs, you know, cause I did work on radio. I, I feel like my mission was to, once you kind of know yourself, you're, you know, that's your path. Yeah. And, and I, so I feel then, like that's like the story of your life of just you, you took hold very quickly of what your passion was and you just, you just flowed in it. You just flowed in it. Like that is your, that's your path. That's your story. Yeah. Um, and right. I like the way that you're able to share that with us, um, coupled with like, your family story, um, mm-hmm. that deep-rooted history in South Carolina, like you just have a way of bringing it all together. Um, and that's uh, the beauty of being an artist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like yeah. Mm-hmm. Like my brother became a lawyer and I remember I had a part-time job and I was working for a law firm and uh, it was a maritime law firm and I was a receptionist and um, I would sit at the typewriter and type poetry all day long. <laughs> just remember that and um and uh I remember him saying to me because he was in law school at the time at Hastings College of the Law in San Francisco and he said well, you need to become a lawyer and I said no that's what you need to do <laughs> like, like you know and when he was telling me that what was I 21 I was like no you you be the lawyer I know what I need to do you know yeah. like that's your, that's your path. That's not mine. Mm-hmm. And I saw the stress that it caused him. Like I remember the first year he was in law school and I went to his apartment and I think he was supposed to be studying. And my brother is somebody who always kept it together, but he did not look like he had it together. He looked like he was really stressed out at that point in time, you know? And um, I still remember that visual of him like, mm-hmm. Oh, 
he's not doing so well. He's struggling. You know what yeah. I mean? That visual, you carried that with you. Yeah. Like I remember that. Like this that that wasn't an easy thing to do, but he felt he needed to do it. And mm-hmm. you know, so I in that way it just kind of really um underscores that I followed what I was supposed to follow. Right. Know? As they say, like you just march to the beat of your own drum. That's right. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, you so I can look back, like even as an artist, sometimes I think, well, maybe I should have done this too. Or, wow, you know, now people have so many different avenues. They can, you know, like, oh, my God, people who are interested in water could be water biologists or whatever they become. Mm-hmm. We didn't have, have all of those choices, you know, like in school. And so latching on to film. And even now I look back and I go, I didn't learn enough. Okay. In, in that particular film school, like what students are learning now and the language they speak about film and I'm learning from them. Like I'll say, what camera did you use and what <laughs> and, and what microphone? And, and I'm asking them, mm-hmm. you know, as I'm teaching them, I'm like, OK, I'm looking at. And so what did you use and how did you use it? You know, yeah. and I keep my little notes because I always have to technology has changed so much it changes consistently you know so yeah yeah so you know with the technology always changing um i'm not getting any younger if you're not out there making work all the time you always have to uh you know keep your chops up Mm -hmm. you have to or you have to pivot and I think I'm pivoting in some ways. I would, I'm really more interested in not seeing my work necessarily on the big screen. I've never been that person. I've never, oh, I want to make a feature film. But I, you know, I have people in my peer group and that's what they learned and that's what they do. Okay. And it's not easy, but they have the tools. They learned to do that a long time ago. Mm-hmm. You know, but to, I, I do believe you, you were able to and still are to this day um, as an example for generations that follow under you to be an example of being free in your, you know, in your career and making that choice to, this is what freedom looks like for me. So Hmm. uh, thinking about that, like, what do you, what do you think that means to be free? Um, Uh, Not not politically, but just as, as it relates to, um, you as an artist and as a black person, as an artist. Well, I think that um, I, I look back at the privilege I have of like Bob Marley says this, there are no chains around my feet, but still I'm not free. Mm-hmm. in one of his songs. And yeah, I think that there's a certain level of freedom. I'm glad that I don't um, work in a factory somewhere because I have to, or you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what freedom will look like once I retire. I don't know how free I can actually be because then it's more like, well, if I'm not getting the same salary because I, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's a different level of well, how much is your pension going to cover? How much longer are you, as a black person, we have these things we have to think about, yeah. you know? So I don't, I don't know if I, I don't want to say freedom is overrated because I think that 
to some degree, you know, we're, we're never really free because we have to depend on uh, a living. We have to depend on having health care, all of these questions that are, it is a political thing. It is um, everything that we've talked about regarding reparations. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I, the ones who are coming in the door now who are um, not black, not brown, they've come with endowments. <laughs> you know, like I, I understand by the way they move, whether they're artists or not, that they've had choices all along that I didn't know were there for me. You know what I'm saying? So I look back and I go, wow, if I had known to use that language, maybe this would have happened or, you know, but I, I see them and they can navigate in ways that I still can't. So I don't really see myself as being free. What I do see is and appreciate is that I can live as an artist and that there's value and there's commodity in that that I create for myself or create through a community of other artists or people who appreciate the arts. Um, And I have to say last year was a good year for me um, financially, you know, because things for us uh, increased if you could be virtual, you know, like, um, and for some people, yeah, because I, I still, you know, have, a full-time job, but my summers have always been difficult. You know, like, oh, how am I going to, oh, because they only pay us for nine months and then you got to swim the rest of the way. You got to, you know, so money was always for me an issue, you know, always. I didn't, my mother worked hard. My mother worked as a maid and then later in life went back to school to receive her bachelor's, you know, but her life has been taken care of and learning to, thank you, take care of um, other people because she did that well. And that was a way of living and surviving. Having been someone from a generation who worked as a domestic and later realized, you know, a degree uh, during, um, empty nest after we'd all left home. Um, And then me coming from that generation and realizing the value of having a job stayed on mine, you know, Um, but the value really is in realizing for younger people, I see them realizing their own independence through entrepreneurship. Um, My daughter, um, you, Natalie, I see people building that model of independence. Not all of us had those models growing up of seeing someone being able to be self-sustaining, but I see more examples of that now. So I guess my um, acknowledgement is of young women like yourself um, becoming more entrepreneurial and that that is something that I see being realized. And I admire that. Thank you. 